like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, currently, we are looking at Ubik, and this is the third part of my, my thoughts on, on Ubik, and I'll be covering chapters 9, 10, and 11 in this, in this episode. So Ubik is pub- was published in 1969, and it's uh, one of Dick's more famous novels. It's, it's one he... He thought a lot about later in his life. You see a lot of references to Ubik in the Exegesis. It, it's certainly um, one he was was thinking about when he was going through his experiences in the in the mid seventies and coming to terms with them in his the writing of his Exegesis. If I ever take a look at the Exegesis, we may we may come back to this book and its meaning, at least what Dick thought it meant in in the nineteen seventies. So it's as I was saying in previous episodes, it almost feels like. Like you're you're in one good novel about posthumans, about how posthumans are used for industrial espionage, and and the kind of the system that evolves for negating that. Uh, we got a lot of fun here with anti-talent, something that Dick explored way back in his short story, The World of Talent, which was published in the mid '50s. It's a really good novel, but then as we saw in the pre- in the previous episode, it starts to shift into something really bizarre and really different by the midway point in the story. So as the story begins, uh, Glenn Runciter, who runs a, a, a Prudence Corporation, these are these anti-sci corporation companies that companies will, other companies will hire to protect their interests from spies. They get lured to the moon where a bomb goes off, killing Runciter but keeping the rest of the inertials, these are the anti-sci's who went with him, alive. They rush him back to Earth where he's put in cold pack, he's put in half-life, which is a a way in which people who have recently died can have their life extended in essentially cryogenic freezing and they can, can be communicated with for a short period of time. They got a limited amount of life in half-life that, that kind of gets spread out, but it seems they have some sort of consciousness while in, in half-life. Um, but while they're coming to terms with the fact that they seem to not able to save Runcet or at least aren't able to communicate with Runcet in Half-Life, strange things start to happen. Things start to decay. Money starts to change. Uh, they start to get strange messages from Runcet on like match folders. Um, milk decays. What else happens? Cigarettes are stale. Um, and they're all kind of experiencing this, this sort of general decaying of things. Um, they start to realize that something weird is going on. There seems to be two forces at work. One is a force that seems to be pushing everything to entropy, to decay, and another force seems to be communicating with them, and that force seems to have some connection with Runciter. So in their mind, what's happening is Runciter in Half-Life is somehow trying to communicate with them, but can't through the normal means of Half-Life. Um, now, such, such, trains are going, such strange things are going on. Our main character, Joe Chip, goes with uh, another inertial, Al Hammond. They decide to go to Baltimore, which is a place they haven't been, and they want to see what will happen in a, in a new location. So they take a quick trip to Baltimore to test 
the limits of the strange things that are happening to them. And, and that's where we left off at the end of, at the end of chapter 8. So anyways, at the beginning of chapter 9, they, they show up in Baltimore. And the first thing they try to do is they try to buy some cigarettes because one of the things they've been experiencing are these stale cigarettes. Um, they, they, one theory about what's going on to them is that the bomb, while killed Runciter, kind of left some kind of radiation on them. In fact, one of the people in their, in their party, Wendy Wright, died in a very strange way not long after the bomb went off. She was kind of uh, turned into a mummy. And it seems this is some kind of long-standing effect from maybe a radiation from, from the bomb. So they're really in a desperate strait to try to figure out what's going on here. So they go to buy cigarettes and they find other customers have issues with the cigarettes also being stale and a bit strange. They end up buying a carton. And there's a little funny scene here where Joe Chip, who has real money management problems, he buys the he wants to buy like the off-brand cigarettes, and Al Hammond says, No, no, buy the buy the real cigarettes or something. And it's just kind of a humorous scene where we're reminded of just how poor Joe Chip is with money. He seems to always be broke. He doesn't even have money to pay the homeostatic. Uh, devices, the appliances, the doors, and things that, that infiltrate the world in, in Ubik. Yet he also seems to buy off-brand stuff. So um, I just think Dick, at this point in his life, must have been playing with this, this pressure that despite how much he saved and how frugal he may have been, he still never seemed to be able to get ahead with, with money. And Joe um, Chip seems to be at least an, an, an aspect of Philip Dick um, at this point in his life, at least in terms of, of debt, of, of poor money management. But in, in a kind of a frustrating way where it's really not explained. He has a job, he's doing everything right, but he still can't seem to, to, to have any cash on hand. So, but anyways, they, they end up buying a, a pack of cigarettes, or I think it's a carton of cigarettes, and it's empty. And they kind of shake it, or I think maybe they just take it off the shelf, and they shake it, and there's a note inside of this. And then, well, of course, taking a, a carton of cigarettes at random and finding a note inside is strange enough. But later on, they find the note is actually addressed directly to them, and here's what it says. Essential I get in touch with you. Situation serious and certainly will get more so as time goes on. There are several possible explanations which I'll discuss with you. Anyhow, don't give up. I'm sorry about Wendy Wright in the in the connection we did all we could in that connection we did all we could. So this is a personalized message to them. Um, very similar to the message they got before. Now that one was more um, uh, kind of an objective message. It was a it was a notice of Glenn Rensiter's death on the match folder. This is a more direct message um, to them, but it seems it's from from Rensiter. It's the only one who could have uh, know what's going on, who's connected to them. But he's supposed to be in Half Life. He's supposed to be in in Cryo. So they go back to to New York with this information that even in Baltimore there seems to be these forces at work, these decaying forces and these other forces that seem to be directed by Runciter that try to be that's trying to communicate with them. Um, they start to worry about food at this point because the food that they're consuming starts to be decayed and and they really can't eat it. They say, well, what about like um, you know canned food? Maybe they can eat, but they're worried if it goes back far enough, this kind of decay process, even the canned food will not be no good anymore. They even joke at one point maybe they have to eat the thousand-year-old eggs that the Chinese like to eat, which is um, now actually nowadays those are usually made with chemicals. There's a there's a chemical process that speeds that up. But I think in the old days they somehow kind of buried and fermented those those eggs, and, and some kind of weird natural process went on with them that that allowed them to be still be edible. Um, so, anyways, like you see pets dying, all kind of these rotting things go kind of go back to a 
it's, it's not really going back in time, although that's happening too. We start to see this shift back in time in this part of the novel where the actual setting that they're in is, is previous times. We've already seen a shift from like 1992 to 1990, but it's, it's this decay is, is, take, is taking on. It's like everything's being affected by entropy, right? They decide to eventually go to Des Moines because this seems to be the place where, where Runster is going to have his, his funeral. Now, why, why do they know to go to Des Moines? Well, there's, they, they know that Des Moines is kind of Runster's hometown, but they actually get instructions. They, at one point, they, they get this tape recorder, which is like of previous generations. So we already have this shifting back in time taking place, even of, of technologies. And in the instruction page of this old-style tape recorder, it, it says, made by Runster of Xerox and a maintenance station in the American Confederation in Des Moines. The same is on the match folder. So then they decide, let's go to Des Moines. It seems that Runster is trying to tell them to go to Des Moines, Des Moines, Iowa. Now, because the setting they're, they're living in is shifting back in time, and eventually it will kind of settle in 1939, that becomes the, the, the time period that they're in. They're worried about actually how to transport there, right? They can't use jet propulsion anymore. You know, they, you know maybe they'll have to use an old-style airplane or a train or an automobile. They're not quite sure how they're going to get to Des Moines, and it becomes more and more complicated. It's not going to be a 10-minute trip, so it's going to actually become a journey to, to get to Des Moines. And it's because they keep moving back in time. Maybe they'll go all the way back to like a horse and buggy or, or some kind of real primitive technology. That's what they're concerned about. I think what's key in this, this chapter, chapter 9, is, is how Dick begins to describe the experience of, of entropy as these characters feel it. Um, you know, they actually start to feel that they themselves are decaying. They start to get tired. They start to see to, to, to lose their vitality, along with like the stale cigarettes and the and the moldy coffee and all that stuff. They themselves seem to be losing their energy. And Wendy Wright has already been kind of dried up and shriveled into a, and a mummy. That seems to be the end result of this process. So here's what Joe Chip thinks about this. He says, and this is right from uh, page one eighteen of my old vintage version of, of Ubik. He now became aware of an insidious seeping cooling off, which at some earlier and unremembered time had begun to explore him, investigating him as well as the world around him. It reminded him of their final minutes on Luna, the chill debased of the surface of the objects. It warped, expanded, showing itself as a bulb-like swelling that sighed audibly and popped. Into the manifold open wounds the cold drifted, all the way down into the heart of things, the core which made them live. What he saw now seemed to be a desert of ice from which dark boulders jutted. A wind spewed across the plain which reality had become. The wind congealed into deeper ice, and the boulders disappeared for the most part. The darkness presented itself off at the edges of his vision. He caught only the meager glimpses of it. But, he thought, this is a projection on my part. It isn't the universe which is being entombed by layers of wind, cold, darkness, and ice. All this is going on within me, and yet I seem to see it outside. Strange, he thought. Is the whole world inside of me engulfed in my body? When did this happen? It must be a manifestation of dying, he said to himself. The uncertainty which I feel, the slowing down into entropy, that's a process. And the ice which I see is a result of the succession, success of the process. When I blink out, he thought the whole universe will disappear. But what about the various lights which I should see? The entrance to new wombs. End quote. Now that, that light to the entrance to the new wombs is a reference to actually the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where this red light seems to lead one to like a rebirth almost, and that, that seems to be an accurate process that people go through in Half-Life. Even Runciter acknowledges that way back in like chapter two. Um, so 
on some level, I, I really think that Dick is talking about the aging process with this, this feeling of entropy that characters have, this kind of growing exhaustion, this feeling of tiredness, this feeling that they just can't get through the day anymore, this feeling of, of nostalgia for the past, perhaps, this feeling that time moves faster, things decay faster, things don't stay good anymore. I mean, that's, in some sense, it's the consumer process, right? That you buy something and within a year it's obsolete and old, right? So I got a computer in front of me, a laptop computer, which I bought a few years ago, but it's already beginning to get run down. It's having tech problems. It's slowing. You know, it's, it's decaying right in front of me, right? Um, you know, the, it's just, this is something that I think younger people maybe don't appreciate the same way people who hit middle age start to appreciate, where everything slows down in life. And it just seems the world is moving faster behind them. It doesn't account for this kind of pushback to 1939 exactly. I don't know how to quite interpret that. Maybe, maybe it's this old kind of concern about nostalgia, right? The danger of, of reverting to the past when faced with this acceleration of, of time, right? Constantly in Ubik, we're being told that there's, there's competing processes going on, right? The process of decay, the process of, of nostalgia, the process of kind of rebirth uh, and and revival with with Ubik with with the Runciter efforts, um, but I really rereading this, I I can't get out of my head that he's talking about the aging process. He's talking about just what it means to to start to get old, and that fear that at some point you are going to wear out, you are going to be a dried up mummy. This kind of acknowledgement of being towards towards death, which of course is what Half-Life is, right? In Half-Life, you're simply waiting to, to die and to be hopefully reborn at some point. But it's, it's just delaying the inevitable. Now, at this point in the story, it's just Al and Joe, and I think, I think they're actually in Runciter's Associates in New York, and they're trying to go up into the conference room. But like even the elevators have become those old-style elevators with the metal frame doors, you know, and you might have got the image of the, of the guy who pulls the lever or something. But I don't think... The elevator attendant is here, but it does have that old style elevators, you know, like from the 30s. They eventually go into a bathroom, though, and and they find a note from Runciter in the bathroom. And here you get this famous quote from this book, the one that everyone remembers. It's written in crayon on the basically on the wall, like graffiti wall of the bathroom. Quote, jump in the urinal and stand in your head. I'm the one that's alive. You're all dead. And a little bit later. On the, on, a, on the same bathroom wall, I think, I think it's the same bathroom wall, you have another graffiti message in the same script called, Lean over the bowl and take a dive. All of you are dead. I am alive. No, sorry, that second graffiti is in the, in the conference room, where, and that's where the chapter ends. So they somehow Runciter is trying to communicate to them that, that they are the ones who have died. They're the ones in Half-Life. Runciter is trying to communicate them from, from the, you know, the real world or whatever. Now, they don't quite believe it right away, and it takes some, some convincing to, to start to realize that they are the ones in Half-Life, but we're seemingly told that. Um, we, see, we really start to see Al, though. Al starts to die in this chapter, actually. He's one of the, the inertials. And so it's actually in the bathroom where Al starts to say he starts to feel he's running down, he's wearing out. He's trying to splash water on his face to wake up, but he really can't. And finally he tells Joe to just go ahead into the conference room and, and to leave him behind, and he'll come out if he can. And we actually never see Al Hammond again, so it seems he, he has the same fate as, as Wendy Wright. Um, the actual timeline of when these characters die is, is a little bit confused because there's some false fronts. 
here, but uh, from from our perspective of reading, and he's the second character to to fall to this this process of entropy. So now it's very clear that they're they're on a timeline that that they have to that it's Runciter's right. These messages from Runciter that they're in serious trouble, that they need to figure this out quickly. This is this is true, and and they have to figure this out as soon as possible. And that seems to mean going back to going to Des Moines and and you know encountering uh, what why Runciter wants them to go there. All right. So then um, chapter ten. Um, much of this chapter involves an engagement with, essentially with the television screen. Um, we see actually a television announcer talking about Glenn Runciter's funeral in, in Des Moines. In fact, like one of these journalists is talking about what happened to Glenn Runciter and how his body failed to be kept in half-life, so he's being buried in, in Des Moines. And they actually talked to, in, in an interview process with, with Don Denny, who's one of the the inertials who's who's with the group so some of them have already made like made it to to Des Moines it seems and very quickly though this scene shifts into like an advertisement right just like you're watching TV you got the news report suddenly it's just an ad right um, but this ad has the face of Glenn Runciter and he talks to the audience in this case the audience is essentially Joe Chip our, our hero and he's simply talking to him like like a like an ad and the point here obviously that dick's trying to make is in this kind of consumer society that we live in and, and he's of course writing this in the 60s and it still applies today it's like if you want to reach someone you want to make someone's attention you make it an ad right you make it um a, a consumer good right so salvation comes through the form of an aerosol spray can eventually ubic the thing that can save people from this process of decay and eventually becomes a a spray can, and I think here we can talk. We can go back and talk about the epigraphs in each chapter of, of, of Ubik. I mentioned them back in the first episode, but each chapter begins with an advertisement for Ubik, and it's always a in the frame of an advertisement for another product. Now, not all of them, but many of them are restorative products, right? I think one is like a bra, which is supposed to, of course, keep your restore your figure and maintain your attractive figure through, you know, the support of a bra. Uh, sometimes they're medicine, sometimes they're sleep aids, but they all are, many of them anyways, are of the theme of, of preservation. Even one that's like a breakfast Pop-Tart kind of thing is presented as, as a, you know, something that puts zing in your thing, quote, zing in your thing. So there's a, there's a theme in these Ubik commercials of, of restoration, right? And we're going to get that with the Grun Runsitter commercial. Now, this is the commercial apparently at, um, you know, filmed by Runster himself. And I'll just quote the, the ad. Tired of lazy taste buds? Has boiled cabbage taken your world of food? The same stale, flat, the same old stale, flat, Monday morning odor, no matter how many dimes you put in the stove? Ubik changes that. Ubik wakes up food flavor, puts hearty taste where it belongs, and restores fine food smell. One invisible puff-puff whisk of economically priced Ubik banishes compulsive, obsessive fears that the entire world is turning into clotted milk, worn-out tape recorders, and obsolete iron cage elevators, plus other further as yet unglimpsed manifestations of decay. You see, world deterioration of this regressive type is a normal experience of many half-lifers, especially in the early stages when ties to the real reality are still strong. A sort of lingering universe is retained as a residual charge, experienced as a pseudo-environment, but highly unstable and unsupported by any arrogant superstructure. 
This is particularly true when several memory systems are fused, as in the case of you people. But with today's new, more powerful than ever Ubik, all this has changed. And it goes on for a couple pages. Now, at one point, Joe Chip is able to talk to this ad in Runciter Replies. He'll deny that this is a, a, a real-time response, saying, I filmed this before the accident. But the message is clear. The message is clear that if Joe wants to survive, they're going to have to get their hands on, on Yupik. This is what will, will save them. Now, after some back and forth, Runciter, through this ad, informs Joe Chip that there is a free sample of Yupik in his Khan app. So Joe Chip decides nothing better to do. He'll go to back to his Khan app in New York and, and get a hold of this free sample. Now he goes back to his Khan app and he finds out not everything has reverted back to earlier times. He's going to eventually get a newspaper that's going to prove that they've kind of settled in 1939, right in the early days of, of World War II. But... Um, he thinks that maybe some things are kind of closer to platonic ideals and therefore they can't decay, right? That's the thing in the philosophical sense that can't decay, right? The, in the platonic sense, the idealist sense that there's ideal forms, ideal objects, and then most of what we have are, are rudimentary copies or reflections of that, of those ideal forms. I'm not sure how the Platonists actually, the terminology they use, but um, it, it's talked about here. Quote, why hadn't the TV you said reverted, reverted instead to formless metals and plastics? Those, after all, were its constituents. It had been constructed out of them, not out of earlier radio. Perhaps it's weirdly verified and discredited ancient philosophy, that of Plato's ideal objects, the universals which were in a class of themselves were real. The form TV set had been a template imposed by as a successor to other templates, like a procession of frames in a movie sequence. Prior forms, he reflected, must carry on an invisible, residual life of each object. The past is latent, submerged, but still there, capable of rising to the surface once the later imprinting, unfortunately, and against ordinary experience vanished. The man contains not the boy, but earlier man, he thought. History began a long time ago. So he's trying to come to terms with this, this reversion, not fully believing yet what Runciter says about the fact that they're dead, that, that he's the one alive, and that they are the ones actually in half-life. So he eventually gets the, the newspaper, which, which is set right, you know, in, the, in 1939, after the invasion of Poland, but before the invasion of France. There's actually accounts of, of battling on the, the Siegfried and Maginot Line. If you don't remember your World War II history, the Maginot Line was the French defensive fortifications um, on their eastern border, and the Siegfried Line was the German equivalent on their, on their western border. So finally he goes to his mailbox and gets his free sample of, of Ubik, but it's not quite what Runciter was advertising, which was, was the spray can, the aerosol spray can. Instead he has this old folksy 19th century style like uh, liver balm and you know that, that seems not usable. Um, no, I'm not sure why they don't try to use it, but um, Joe says to himself, uh, he, he read the list of ingredients once more feeling growing baffled anger, and a mounting helpless sensation that took root and spread through every part of him. I'm finished, he said to himself. This stuff isn't what Runster advertised on TV. This is some arcane mixture of old-time patent medicines, skin salves, painkillers, poisons, inert nothings, plus all things Corazon, which didn't exist before World War II. Obviously, the Ubik, which he described to me on the tape TV commercial, this sample of Inania had reverted. In irony, that's just plain too much. The substance created to reverse the regressive change process had itself regressed. I should have known when I saw the old purple three cent stamps. So the 
the Ubik, this regressed form of Ubik seems not usable uh, to, to help him. So he's out of luck. This free sample of Ubik is not going to, to save him. Again, we have these, these processes competing, the process of runs that are trying to save them by giving them the, the Ubik and then the process of, of regression or reversion taking place. So he decides he has to get to Des Moines. That's all that's left for him. He has to get to Des Moines before he shares the fate of Wendy Wright and Al Hammond. And so, you know, what, how's, what's he going to do? He's got an old LaSalle. His car has reverted to an earlier version. So does he do that or does he fly? So he thinks he decides to try to fly to the airport and, and there's still airplanes. So he's going to try to get to Des Moines by plane. So he tries to travel. He tries to trade the LaSalle at the airport for a plane ticket. But the car has already reverted back to a 1929 Model T. It's no longer the same car that he, he drove in and they're not willing to trade it for a plane ticket. He thinks about drinking this elixir of Ubik. So now the, the Ubik, the free sample, has regressed even more into something called the elixir of, of Ubik, spelled here's spelled U-B-I-Q-U-E. And it's, it's again, it's this old-fashioned kind of 19th century, um, you know, con artist medicine almost, like uh, snake oil. Quote, elixir of Ubik, guaranteed to restore lost manliness and to banish vapors of all kinds, as well as to relieve reproductive complaints in both men and women, a beneficent to mankind when seditiously employed as indicated. And that's, a, that's a bit of a joke because every um, chapter begins with a reference to, to, like an advertisement for Ubik, and they almost all say, use only as directed, which is how it's being said in the, in the 1960s, but in the 19th century, it would have been worded perhaps this way, you know, employed as indicated. Um, but he, he looks at the, the, the bottle and there's another handwriting, another message from Munster and it says, don't do it, Joy, there's another way. Keep trying. You'll find it. Lots of, of luck. So he decides not to use it. He was actually thinking about just killing himself with this old, decrepit medicine that's probably mostly poison anyways. So he decides not to use it and, and goes on to to Des Moines. So in chapter 11, uh, one of the men at the airport actually sees this bottle of elixir of Ubik and, and says, oh, my grandma used to talk about this stuff. He was interested in it kind of from an old-fashioned sense. It seems to be a, a Civil War era um, kind of medicine, a snake oil type of medicine. So he eventually says, I'll trade you the trip to Des Moines that you're looking for, the plane ticket, in exchange for uh, the bottle. So he gets to Des Moines not long after, um, three in the afternoon the following day. It's an old, I guess, biplane or something, how he, how he gets there. And when he gets there, he tries to use the telephone and he uses a, he gives a nickel to pay for the telephone and the guy refuses it because it's a 1940 nickel. And of course it's 1939. So he has to find a, you know, a different coin that will, will, will will be acceptable. He ends up talking with the guy at the funeral home. I think his name is Mr. Bliss. And and he kind of figures out that all these inertials are somehow psychics or psionics or have some ability. And, and so he thinks maybe they can tell the future. So he starts asking them about the war. And we got just a different, different interesting aside here. Dick was very interested in World War II. He, of course, wrote... Man in the High Castle, World War II, and then especially the Nazis come up a lot in his book, especially in the mid-60s. They're in the penultimate truth and the simulacrum. Um, and he had some real deep interest in just the, the nature, of, nature of Nazi rule and, and 
and World War II itself, also kind of the shifting alliances of the Cold War, how we go from having allies with Russia to being their opponents. And this guy he talks to, Bliss, is actually a, you know one of these uh, nativist uh, isolationists that were, of course, the most popular in the in the 30s. Roosevelt, who maybe wanted to move towards intervention in the war, was the minority opinion. Even Lim, Limbaugh, Limburg, sorry, is is actually mentioned here, and he was kind of the forefront of this anti-interventionist inter interventionist movement, right? And the sentiment that the real enemy was like Russia. And, and maybe we should let the Nazis defeat Russia it was a real sentiment in the United States at the time. And, you know, Joe ends up telling this guy a lot of what's going to happen in the war, that the Germans will violate their pact with Russia, that eventually the Allies will win, the Allies will be, or the U.S. will be allied with Russia and all that. And, and, and here's what Bliss says when hearing that the Nazis are going to invade Russia. Those communists are the real menace, not the Germans. Take the treatment of the Jews. You know who makes a lot of that? Jews in this country. A lot of them are not citizens, but refugees living on public welfare. I think the Nazis certainly have been a little extreme in some of the things they've done to the Jews. But basically, there's been the Jewish question for a long time. And something, although maybe not so vile as those concentration camps, had to be done about it. We have a similar problem here in the United States, both with the Jews and the, the N-word is here. So, and... This, well, first I want to just give some historical context here. I'm not sure the average, like, newspaper reader was so aware of concentration camps. Um, of course, the death camps the, of in Poland came really in 42, 43. That's, the, that's when, like, the, you had the Operation Rhein, um, Reinhardt death camps, the, 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 the murder of the Jews in, in Poland. Um, Auschwitz lasted a little bit longer, into into forty four, I think, when it was liberated by the by the Soviets. But the the point is, uh, you have of course the Nuremberg laws. You had anti Jewish policies, which would have been known. I'm not sure how widely known concentration camps were yet. Um, you know, especially this early in the war. This this is set right when Poland was was occupied, right. And that's really when you start to get the ghettos and the forced migrations of Jews. My understanding of it, and I, I, a while ago I read some primary sources on this, you know, that, that, that there were some Jewish press talking about this stuff, but I'm not sure it was in the, like the everyday newspaper. Yeah, it comes a little bit later in, in the war. And general knowledge of it really wasn't until like 44, 45. So this might be a bit anachronistic, mentioning concentration camps at this point in, in regards to, to Jews. But uh, the racial slur towards African-Americans awakened Joe to realize that they really can't exist in this time. It, it's not going to work. They're, they're morally out of time. The Ubik is set in 1999, right? These are people from 99. And, and Joe thinks this, quote, but instinctively he sensed that a major problem for all of them had exposed itself just now. He knew too much, he realized, to live comfortably in this time segment. If we had regressed 20 years or 30 years, we could probably make the psychological transition. It might not be interesting to live once more through the Gemini spacewalks and the creaking first Apollo flights, but at least it would be possible. But at this point in time, kind of dot, 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 the ideas are just so different that they couldn't really exist in this time period. Any idea of really settling in this period is, is going to be futile. And the reason it's like a moral discontinuity over time. And, you know, obviously we see in Android's Dream of Electric Sheep a realization that moral 
morality is somewhat contextual, right? Before the war in that novel, eating meat was permissible. After the war with the eradication of most animal species, the thought of eating an animal is horrifying to most people. So morality is something that's historically contingent. Here, so all this is going on here. A lot of interesting stuff here about being out of time, about the general anti-communist isolationism of the time period and all that. Finally, though, Joe Chip meets the other inertials at the, at the funeral, and they begin to discuss the situation. They, are, they debrief each other as much as they can. And obviously, reality is receding. Uh, time is going back to previous forms. Uh, you still have the, the problem of decay. You know, people have been exposed to Ubik. Um, Francisca Spanish, one of the, the inertials, has had a dream of, of Ubik. So Runster is trying to talk to her through dreams. So it's not just Joe that Runster is trying to contact with this knowledge of, of Ubik. So after talking with him, he goes to actually look at Munster in the, because it's still the funeral like viewing. He goes to see the casket, and here's what he sees. He sees a singed, dehydrated heap of bones lay at one end of the casket, culminating in a paper-like skull that leered up with him with eyes recessed like dried grapes. Tatters of clothes with bristled like wound spines had collected near the tiny body as if blown there by the wind, as if the body breathing had cluttered itself with them by its wheezing, meager process. Inhalation and exaltation, which had now ceased. Nothing stirred. The mysterious change which had degraded Wendy Wright and Al had reached its end, evidently a long time ago. Years ago, he thought, remembering Wendy. Now, uh, to make matters worse, another one of the inertials has gone missing. It's, it's um, Dorn. Um, Eddie Dorn has, has gone missing. So they realize, and Joe announces this to everyone, that maybe their best chance of surviving is really to stay together. Wendy Wright, when she was by herself, decayed. Al Hammond, when he was left in the bathroom, decayed and died. Uh, Runster, I guess, when he was... Well, he, he's, a, he's a special case, but now that Eddie, Eddie Dorn is gone... You know, he's probably going to dedicate to that seems to be a common theme so he says they really maybe they need to stay together without ubik maybe the only way to stay alive is to to stay together so that's the current strategy they they have um and that does it for for chapter 11. um uh, so what happens in this part of the novel obviously we see the centrality of ubik being presented through consu through through consumer popular culture as the means by which to to save their lives in this half-life. It's strongly implied by this point in the novel that they are the ones who are dead, that Runciter is in the real world trying to communicate with them through the means of half-life. Um, he's trying to talk to many of them. Uh, we've reverted back to this kind of 1939 time period. We still have this process of decay going on, but there are efforts by Runciter to, to seemingly save them. And the means of doing this is this mysterious product called Ubik, which also can revert to earlier forms which make it unusable. So that's a bit of an irony with it, but the goal then is to find Ubik in its kind of up-to-date form as a, as a spray can, as Runciter advertised it. So um, that does it with chapter 11. It does it with this episode. In the next episode, we'll finish up with, with Ubik. We'll look at chapters 12 through 17. Um, a lot of those chapters are quite short um, and things run to a rapid conclusion, as they're apt to do in Philiptic novels. You know the, you know, tends to uh, get to the get to the the climax and the conclusion pretty rapidly. It doesn't mean we all the an everything's answered. It doesn't mean everything is is resolved. But we get to some kind of resolution of sorts by by the end. This this novel in particular is one that really leaves us in an ambiguous place, a really a kind of unsatisfying place. It's it's like a 
an atonality. A lot of his novel, he's known for that, but a lot of his novels do have a resolution, even when you're dealing with shifting realities and false fronts. Ubik is, is one of the first to really leave you up in the air without any satisfying resolution. That's going to be a bigger theme, I think, in some of the later novels. In The Maze of Death, you're going to have that. Uh, the Valis stuff has more of that kind of uncertainty at the end. But um, we'll talk about uh, my final thoughts on, on Ubik, as well as the final chapters and the major themes of, of the novel in the, in, the, in the next episode. So thanks, as always, for, for listening. Let me know what you think of, of these middle chapters of, of Ubik. Uh, how do we make sense of this reversion to 1939? What's the significance of this World War II, II era? Um, you know, is it something about nostalgia? Uh, that was, of course, a big theme in Now Wait for Last Year, even uh, a few other novels, I think. But that one in particular, Nostalgia, was criticized a lot. Is Dick criticizing nostalgia for the past as a way of dealing with decay? Um, is that it's the wrong, maybe that's the wrong response to the inevitability that we do get older. Is this a novel about aging? Uh, I haven't seen it really interpreted that way before. It's usually interpreted in more theological terms, but rereading it, I, I keep coming to this idea that this feeling of just being worn down, of, of getting tired, or of, of being exhausted, of, of needing some kind of revival, some kind of rejuvenation. It's, it's the feeling we get when we get older, right? And it's... You know, things seem to move faster. Consumer goods seem to decay faster when we reach a certain age. Time seems to speed up at the very moment that, you know, we reach middle age. Kind of a bleak thought, right? Remember how long summers were when you were kids, right? Summers now are, are flashes, in the, of, flashes in the pan. So it's, it's a, kind of a bleak look at aging, I think, to some degree. Um, well, anyways, that, that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. Leave your comments below or send me a an email at hundredpagescast.gmail.com and, and I'll be back shortly with my final thoughts on, on, on Ubik. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you're